Good morning. My name is Billy Berglund, and for the last four years, I've had the privilege of being on staff here at Self Fellowship, um, working with the student ministry, and it's been a, a great joy uh, in my life. Um, my wife, Hannah, and I, you've welcomed us. You've been there um, all the way through for us, and this summer... We actually had a new addition to our family. Uh, little baby Cooper uh, was born on May 31st. Um, there he is. He came six weeks early, so we were a little bit surprised. Um, his due date was actually last week, but he decided to come at the end of May. And so there he is. He spent a little bit of time in the NICU, uh, but he's growing now. You can see in that third picture, he's getting a little bit chunky, which is good. So we feel really blessed um, for him. But this morning, I want to start with a story. Um, a few months ago in March, my wife Hannah and I, we went on a uh, trip to Phoenix. Uh, we were celebrating the end of seminary for me, kind of a, a lot of transitions in our life. Our five-week wedding anniversary is coming up. And um, so we went to Phoenix and the, kind of this last trip before the baby came. And we went to a restaurant at the suggestion of Josh Suddeth, our youth pastor, went to this Mexican restaurant. So we walk up, and it's a very small place. There's just like two rooms. The tables are about an arm's length, a distance from each other, so very small. We walk in, and everybody's really dressed up. We are way underdressed. And we take a seat, and the waiter gives us the menus, uh, and he says, can I get anything started for you guys? And I said, uh, yeah, we'll have some chips and salsa. And he goes, well... Chef doesn't really do chips and salsa. And we're like, what kind of place is this? Every Mexican restaurant has chips and salsa. But we're like, okay. So he hands us the menu. We can't read anything on the menu. It is uh, crazy expensive. I thought Josh was playing a prank on us. And so this anniversary dinner is not going as we expected. So the night goes on a little bit. And then there's this commotion. The waiters are kind of moving some tables together. They actually asked a couple to move Tables, uh, they weren't going to ask us to move. They didn't give me chips and salsa. But they um, were moving these tables, and uh, all of a sudden, this group comes in. And they're dressed in these suits and ties and dresses, really fancy. Last person that walks in is John Elway. On a Tuesday night in March in Phoenix, I am at the same restaurant as John Elway, and I freak out. I am like so, in fact, I took a picture, which shows my level of... Oh, there he is. Uh, there's John. Um, he didn't know I took that picture, um, if you knew the lengths it took to get that picture. But um, he was sitting at the table next to us, and so I was just thrilled. And so the whole time I'm like looking over, and as you can imagine, my wife was not amused. This was supposed to be our anniversary dinner, and I am fixated on the fact that John Elway knew I was in town and came to the same restaurant as me, but... You know, I think about that, and when I think about me, my upbringing, I loved football. I watched John Elway growing up. I watched him beat my Packers in the Super Bowl 20-some years ago. So this was a huge deal to me. But for my wife, this wasn't that big a deal. I mean, she doesn't really care about retired pro football stars. She just wanted us to have a focus on our dinner and you know, it turns out we went to the wrong restaurant. Josh had suggested a different restaurant. We ended up in the wrong place, so we shouldn't have even been there in the first place, but we have quite the story now. But I think about that, and I think that what comes to our mind when we think about certain people and relationships kind of dictates our actions and our interactions with them. If we're really comfortable with a family member or a friend, we're just going to be ourselves. We're going to live in this freedom and this joy 
And if we're nervous or anxious or tense, we're not going to live in this freedom. We're going to be kind of fearful and anxious. And I think the same thing happens with God, that each of us brings this background and story in here today. We all have a unique journey and story that's been shaped by our lifestyle, our experiences, our interactions, perhaps our earthly fathers, our earthly stories. And so we bring this here this morning, and there's this quote from A.W. Tozer, the pastor. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, I remember hearing that for the first time, and I thought, I don't know if that's true but over time, I think that is. It shapes everything that we do, our, the way we view ourselves, the way we view others, our actions. And so what we want to do this morning as we study a, a passage from Scripture is we're going to look at this idea that our understanding of how God views and pursues us will shape how we view and pursue others. If you've ever thought about that today, what's the facial expression that God has when he thinks of you? Is it discouragement or disappointment, frustration? Is it anger? Is it joy? Is it a smile? And what is that? And we all bring something here today. These last few weeks, we've been in the parables of Jesus, and we've been looking at these stories that Jesus tells that he throws right alongside of reality. They connect with the people, just like TV shows and stories today draw us in, and we want to keep learning and following along, Jesus does these same things with these stories. They captivate us. They draw us in. They move us and change us as Jesus tells stories about life in the kingdom, about God, about grace, and more. Jesus was this master storyteller. He loved to teach in parables. In the last two weeks of this series, Ryan, he preached uh, two weeks ago on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. He said, the way that you see yourself Shapes, every, or shapes your approach to everything else. The way you see yourself shapes your approach to everything else. And last week, Larry, from the parable of the talents, he said, our theology of God will greatly impact how we experience God. And so this morning, we're going to kind of build on those ideas as we look at a passage of scripture from Luke 15. If you can turn there with me, we'll be in Luke 15, and uh, we're going to look at a series of three parables that Jesus tells and by doing so, we're going to see this pattern that's going to emerge, that's going to have profound importance for us today. Because at South, our mission is to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And so what we learn about Jesus and his ministry will shape our everyday lives and our interactions. So to start, we're going to be in Luke 15, verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. This is how the story starts. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now the context is crucial to understanding the, the series of parables that Jesus is going to tell. He's speaking to two groups of people, and as the master storyteller, he's going to be able to connect directly with both groups. The first group is the lowly of society, the rejected, the outcast, this tax collectors and sinners. But it's interesting that they were drawn to Jesus. They were attracted to him. They, they were notoriously despised and they were dishonest. And so a lot of people kind of avoided them. But Jesus pursued them. He went to where they were. He spent time with them. He showed love to them. And as verse 1 says, they were gathered around to hear him. There was something about him. And that's the first group. And the second group is verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
the Jewish religious leaders, the religious elite who were so focused on doing the right things, but they missed Jesus' heart. They were outwardly looking righteous, but on the inside, they were unclean. And they don't like how Jesus hangs out with these people. They thought that if they were going to spend time with them, then they were going to become unclean. And they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to be around them. And so they're muttering and they're grumbling and they're like, Jesus, this man is welcoming sinners and eating with them. It's so important for us to understand Jesus as he describes his own mission in Luke 19.10. He says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is his mission and his heart. And if we're to live in his way with his heart, we have to understand and embrace this mission. And so in a series of three parables, Jesus is going to encourage this group of tax collectors and sinners, and he's also going to challenge these Jewish religious leaders. And so with that background in mind, we'll jump into Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, in this parable, we begin to see Jesus' heart for people and a desire to be in a relationship with us. This story would have connected really well with his people. This was an everyday kind of event. A shepherd having 100 sheep is a very common thing. They would count them every night, and so losing one might happen on a regular basis. It may not seem like a huge deal to us. After all, he's got 99. What's the big deal about this one But it is a big deal that Jesus is challenging his hearers. He says that each sheep, each person is valuable, that they matter. And then once it's found, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. There's rejoicing. He calls a party. There's a celebration. The lost is found. But you might ask, and it's a good question, what kind of shepherd would leave 99 sheep all alone and go after one? The reality was at this time, the head shepherd would go after this one sheep and he would make sure the 99 were safe. He would be left with hired help to keep them safe and secure. And the point being, God doesn't just abandon his followers, but what Jesus is showing is that the parable is saying that he has a passion for the lost. He has a passion for pursuing the lost. And in the same way, in verse 7, there's rejoicing over one sinner who repents, over 99 who don't need to repent. He's encouraging his audience and saying there's a place for you. No matter your past, no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, that there is room for you at the table, that you are welcome. That in Jesus, you're not defined by the mistakes that you make, but by the grace that he gives. In a relationship with him, you're not defined by the mistakes that you make, but by the grace that, you, that he gives that you're invited into God's family, into a new life, and there will be a great celebration when you accept that invitation. And the key lies in that word, repent. This is a key aspect all throughout Jesus' ministry. He's calling people to repentance. Literally, the word repentance means to change one's mind, a change of mind that results in a change of action, to turn from our sins and to turn to God, to accept him as our Lord and Savior, to believe in him, to place our faith in him. And as this parable and many other passages throughout the gospel show, this is Jesus' main goal. He's pursuing people with that goal of repentance and a new 
life. And repentance is only made possible through God's grace and his drawing us, his pursuit of us. And this true repentance will lead to a changed life. This invitation is made available and this is great news. But some see it differently. As we saw in verse two, the religious leaders, they're grumbling and muttering. They don't want to welcome in some types of people. They see the community of believers as a country club with reserved access rather than open to all who would repent and believe in Jesus. And Jesus is challenging this mindset. In the parable, Jesus is showing that there will be a great party, a celebration in the community over anyone who turns to him. Will they join in this celebration? And it's interesting, at the end of this, he says over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He's kind of using some irony because he's shown throughout the Gospels and the New Testament there's a universal need for repentance. And what he's really saying is that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who acknowledges his sin, who repents, than over 99 who think they are righteous and have no need to repent. And so with this first parable, Jesus is highlighting how God views and pursues us. He has deep concern and love and mercy for each individual, and we matter to God. The second parable is found in Luke 15, 8 through 10. Jesus continues, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The second parable is very similar to the first, and it reinforces the points that Jesus has made in the first parable, but this situation is slightly different. Now there's a woman with ten coins, and she loses one. And these coins, we don't know her exact situation. She could have been poor or widowed. Many scholars think that they would have more than just monetary value, but that there would be some sort of sentimental value, that this represented a part of a jewelry or similar to like a ring. So it mattered a lot that she lost one of these coins. We don't know the exact details, but what we do know is that there's great value placed in finding that coin. And once found, the woman again gathers her friends and neighbors together for a celebration in community. In verse 10, Jesus says, in the same way, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. These two parables together are very intentional. Jesus is showing that God is merciful, that each and every individual is precious and important in his sight, that he has deep love for each person and we matter to God. He wants to be in a relationship with us and there's a celebration when we turn to him. And throughout these two parables, Jesus is contrasting this communal response of celebrating and joy in the community of faith with these Pharisees and their grumbling and their muttering. As I thought of these two parables with the theme of lost and found in my own life, uh, stories have a way of kind of drawing you in as you find yourself in the story. Jesus, even as this master storyteller, he'll ask questions. Wouldn't you go looking for that one sheep? Wouldn't you go looking for that one coin As I thought about this, I thought about when I was a young boy. I had a best friend, and we went everywhere together. Everywhere I went, he went. From my growing up for many, many years, probably too many years, his name was Simba. And Simba was a stuffed animal, yes. This is actually probably what he looked like. 
And the, the timing is kind of funny um, that this new Lion King movie just came to movie or the theaters again this weekend. But I don't remember how old I was. I probably was too old for stuffed animals. Um, are you ever too old for stuffed animals? I don't know. But we were on vacation up in Keystone, Colorado, and our whole family was there, and we were around Keystone Lake, and I had Simba with me because everywhere I went, he went. And we were by the lake, and I had set him up kind of on this high railing around the lake, and as you might guess, he just fell in to the lake. And I was horrified. I was wailing and shrieking. I had to get Simba back. If I didn't, I might have to make real friends. I needed to find Simba. And so my family, they still talk about this event to this day, but we, I was unconsolable. I had to get Simba back, and we tried everything. Finally, we went, and we found a, a lady who had this giant net, and she, she put it in the water and scooped Simba to safety, and I was just so happy, this sopping wet Simba who smelled terrible. But my joy was restored, and there was rejoicing in the Berglund household that day. But when we lose something that is valuable to us, we will go to great lengths to find it. These parables give us a glimpse into God's heart for us, that we matter to him, that we're important to him, that we are worth pursuing. Have you ever thought of that, that God pursues you because you are worth pursuing? that you matter, that you're made in his image, that he sees you and he loves you and he knows you. You're not just some sheep or just some coin. You hold deep importance to him in the way that you are uniquely and wonderfully made. And so through these two parables, we're beginning to see how God views and pursues us. But Jesus does not stop at, this, at these two parables. He keeps going. He's been building, and now he's going to come to kind of his main event, this third parable. He's told the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now he's going to tell the parable of the lost son, also known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, this story might be very familiar to you. If you were here at South two years ago, we went through a six-week series called Freeway, where we really dug into this parable, and there's so much to see in this parable. But this morning, I want us to encourage us to enter into this story as if we're hearing it for the first time. Imagine you're part of his original audience, and you're gathered around to hear Jesus. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I believe that this story has shaped my understanding of God and the way that he views me, perhaps more than any other story in Scripture. And so let's jump in. We'll be in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything." So we're beginning to see some differences already in this parable with the two that preceded it. There's two sons in the story, and that's important. This younger son willfully chooses to leave. He just chooses to make a poor decision and go on his way. He basically goes to his father and says, I wish you were dead. Just give me your stuff. Give me my share of the estate, and I'm going to go. And that would have been one-third of the estate he would have been in line for. And in a stunning move, the father, who Jesus is identifying himself with in this story, he gives it to him. He allows him to make his choice, 
and to go on his way. And it doesn't work out well as the younger son is not only unfaithful to his father, but also to his people. He goes off to a distant country, he spends everything he has, and a famine comes. And he's at his lowest possible point. He's longing to eat the pod that the pigs were eating. He was desperate, and he hit rock bottom. Maybe you find yourself here today, perhaps not exactly what this younger son has gone through, but you find yourself at a place you never expected. Through a series of decisions or habits or hang-ups or trials, you feel far away from God. You might feel like there's no way that God could forgive you, no way that you could turn back. And if that's you this morning, be encouraged because this story is far from done. Let's jump back into the story, starting in verse 17. When he came to his senses, the younger son, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. At his lowest point, the youngest son comes to his senses. He realizes his sin was not only against his earthly father, but against his heavenly father as well. He is truly repentant. Remember, a change of heart that leads to a change of action. But he can't imagine that his father will ever accept him again as a son. Perhaps as a servant, but never as a son. Maybe for a meal, but never as a member of the family. It's possible that he won't even make it home. The community might get there before he gets home and they might reject him and say, you're not welcome here, don't come back. And so he likely has this feeling of, of nerves and a little bit of anxiousness as he sets out for home, not knowing what to expect when he gets home. After all, he's brought disgrace and shame on his family. But let's finish verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I love this verse. God has used this verse in my life to really cause me to rethink the way that God views me. That he's not disappointed in me, but he delights in me. That he wants to be in a relationship with me and he runs to me. At this time, the father running would have been completely countercultural. He would have brought shame upon himself for running to his son. But there's so much to see. He sees his son, which implies he was looking for his son, perhaps day after day longing for his son to come home. He feels compassion for his son, not disgust. He loves him dearly. He runs to embrace him and kiss him. I imagine just a giant bear hug that he gives his son. He ignores the social norms. He brings shame upon himself, but he doesn't care about that. He cares about his son, and his son is home, and his son is forgiven and is loved. And the son, he then begins this planned speech to his father. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he gets through the first two lines before the father interrupts him. The younger son is genuinely repentant. He acknowledges his sin, and he knows he's not worthy to be called his son. But before he can ask to be made like a servant, the father said to him, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. This is so amazing that the younger son will not be made like a hired servant. Instead, he's fully accepted back into the family. He's given a ring and a robe and sandals, and the fattened calf is killed for celebration. Each of these symbolize that he's being fully welcomed back into the family. He's reconciled completely to his father. Not only that, he's treated as a guest of honor. He's a deeply loved child, and he's fully accepted. The father doesn't say, go clean up, and then I can accept you. He runs to him in the middle of his mess. It probably smelled bad. His breath was probably bad, hanging with the pigs. But the father runs to him and embraces him and accepts him right then and there. And this calls for a celebration, just like the first two parables. There's a community event. The son was dead and is alive again. There was joy and rejoicing. It's a wonderful day. You can imagine the shock that his original hearers, Jesus' original hearers, would have on their faces when they hear this. And we might be so familiar with this story that we might just read over this. Yep, we've heard this before. The father runs. I get that. But imagine hearing this for the first time. What if you truly believed this with your own life, over your own life, that God is waiting with open arms, that he wants you to come home, he's running to you, he delights in you, and he loves you. By faith, we are part of his family. There's a celebration for us. We belong, that we are his children, sons and daughters of God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Like the song we sang today, I am no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. I have the privilege of working with students here in student ministry and next year as a teacher and a coach, and it's truly one of the greatest joys of my life. I am so excited for this next generation, and I'm encouraged by their faith. But I believe one of the most important issues for students and adults alike is identity. It's so important for us to know that our deepest and truest identity is not in our performance or our popularity or our earthly success, but as a child of God. Our identity is not in what we have done or what we can do or accomplish, but in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we no longer have to live for approval. We can live from approval, from a place of acceptance, not for acceptance, that we are his children and we can walk in freedom and newness of life. I love that picture that Jesus paints for us, the Father running to us. And my hope is that that begins to be the vision that you see when you think about God, this Father running to us with grace. Now let's return to our passage in Luke 15. The younger son has come home. The father runs to him. He welcomes him back to the family. There's a celebration. The lost is found, and everybody's happy. Well, not quite. Jesus could have ended the parable there. After all, that's how the first two parables end, this community-wide celebration. But there's a question that I've often wondered about this chapter of the Bible. As you look at the first two parables, the shepherd and the woman, they go out looking for what is lost. But in this parable, the son leaves, and where does the father? He stays home. She was looking for his father, or looking for his son, and when his son comes home, he runs to him, but he doesn't go out in the same way that he did in the first two parables. And I've often wondered, why is that? 
Well, culturally, it was the older brother's job to go out looking for the younger brother. To his original hearers, they would have immediately known this. And that's when it clicked for me, that when we put it together, we see that Jesus is challenging these religious leaders to live in his way with his heart, to pursue the lost, to welcome him. We see this pattern all throughout the Old Testament, that God invites us to live on mission with him to go and search and seek the lost for those who do not yet believe in him, to understand his deep love first, to understand the way that he views and pursues us, and then to go out and view and pursue others in the same way, to spread the hope and good news to others. Recall our big idea from today, our understanding of how God views and pursues us will shape how we view and pursue others. These Pharisees and religious leaders, they missed the point. They didn't understand how God's heart and how he viewed them, and they were missing out on this life-giving relationship. Watch how he puts it in the remainder of this story, Luke 15, 25 through 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother's of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. This older brother is upset and he's angry. He won't even acknowledge his younger brother. He calls him this son of yours. He's upset at the father for welcoming him home. He's missing God's heart. He'd spent his whole life trying to earn God's affection. He was living in fear. His whole world was revolved around himself. He was completely self-focused. He didn't care much about others. And there's so much in this little passage, and there's amazing the way that Jesus tells it. First, the older brother refuses to go to the party. So what does the father do in verse 28? He went out and pleaded with him. He calls him my son. He's still pursuing the older brother. Just like he went out running to the younger, whoa, just like he went out running to the younger son, he went out searching for the older son. He's still inviting him to the party. He's saying it's not too late. He wants him to join in the celebration. And Jesus is saying to the religious leaders that he's calling them to change. He's calling them to join into the celebration. Second, in verse 31, the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I truly believe that this was a foreign idea to the brother, the older brother. He was not living in the freedom and love that was offered to him as a son, and he didn't even realize that. He was so focused on earning and striving and keeping score and comparing that he was bitter and mad. And lastly, I think it's ironic how this parable ends. We know this as the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. I prefer the, the story being called the parable of the surprisingly good Father, But both of the first two titles, the parable of the lost son and the parable of the prodigal son, are referring to the younger son. But who's lost in the story? 
Jesus flips it. The older brother is the one who's lost. He's missing out. He's missing the point. Whereas the younger son was lost in his rebellion and came home, the older son was lost in his religion, and the story ends with not knowing what will happen next. The younger brother repents and just hoped to be accepted as a slave or a servant, but he's welcomed as a son. The older brother's already accepted as a son, but he was living as a slave or a servant. He's missing the point. He's not living from his father's approval and love, but he's always trying to earn it. He's miserable and he's lost, yet in both cases, the father goes out to each brother. He pursues them. Our understanding of how God views and pursues us will shape how we view and pursue others. As I reflect on these parables, God has really used them to change my understanding of him, to change the, the way that he views me. For so much of my life, I just imagined him as disappointed. I should have known better. I just didn't measure up. I'm just not good enough. And I think in a lot of those ways, I relate to the older brother, trying to earn it. And I just feel like I've, some days I did, and some days I just didn't measure. Uh, but a huge part of my journey that really kind of kick-started this in me was August 9th, 2015, four years ago. Feels like a long time ago. But my wife and I had moved to Colorado the day before. We didn't know anybody here. I was going to start in seminary in a few weeks, and we sat in the back. And I remember Ryan's words that day. At the end of the sermon, he said this line that has stuck with me four years later. It really sparked a new trajectory for me. And this is what he said. God pursues relentlessly, loves always, and refuses to give up on you. He is relentless to the end. God pursues relentlessly, loves always, and refuses to give up on you. He is relentless to the end. For some reason, this just felt new to me, that the God of the universe knows me and pursues me, that he wants to be in a relationship with me, that he loves me deeply. He's not disappointed in me, but he delights in me. And I think these parables bring this out so clearly. And so what do we do with all of this? How do we put this into practice in our daily lives? We're invited into this journey together with Jesus to join in, but we're meant to do it together. Our faith is not a solo act. It's a team sport. And as in each parable, a great celebration occurs in community among the people of faith. And this mission needs to be our heartbeat. So how, what does this look like? If you have your bulletins, you might have noticed that I titled this passage or this message, A Pattern of Pursuit. And I've left a blank for three lines. And we're called to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And we've seen this over the course of these three parables. And I've read this story many times. I've heard it taught and I've, I've taught on this story. And maybe that's the same for you. But a while back, I was struck with something. And I want to bring it out today. If you go back to verse 20, you remember the younger son had left and he's coming home. And the father, he sees him. He was filled with compassion and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And it struck me because it sounded familiar. And I began searching through some of the Gospels, and what we find is that this is a pattern all throughout Jesus' ministry. And I don't think that's a pure coincidence when we find a pattern in Scripture like that, that it's, I think it's there intentionally, that Jesus sees people, that he feels compassion for them, and then he moves toward them in love. A few examples, Jesus raises a widow's son, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Verse 13, he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. 
and the man comes back to life. He sees her. He had compassion on her. He raises her son to life. Before Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's withdrawing in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but the crowds heard it, and they followed him on foot from the towns. His disciples are tired. They say, let's just go and be by ourselves. But when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. A little later on, he's going to feed the 5,000, the same parallel passage in Mark 6. So this is all throughout Jesus' ministry that he models for us, but it's also in his teaching in the way that he invites us into this mission with us. Check this out. And Jesus sends out his disciples in Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord, ask the Lord of the harvest to therefore to send out the workers into the harvest field. We are invited into this journey with him. And perhaps the strongest example of all is the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Another very well-known parable where an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. And he rightly notes that he should love God and love neighbor. But to justify himself, he says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus has this answer. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who should have helped him was going down the road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite who should have helped him, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, who culturally would have been crazy to think that a Samaritan would have helped a Jew, but when he saw him, what does he do? He saw him, he had compassion he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, put him, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This pattern is very intentional in Jesus' ministry and in his teaching for us. And so if we're called to live in his way with his heart, we're going to follow Jesus' pattern of pursuit. And so this is kind of our application for today. At first, what if we truly see others? Realizing that everybody bears God's image, that we see others as God sees them. And it starts with knowing how God sees us, the grace that he's given to us, that every person that you meet has a story Instead of quickly judging or ignoring people, what if we started noticing them? Think about how much that means to you when someone takes the time to notice you. I think about my story and the men who have noticed and pursued me. The volunteer basketball coach, Scott, when I was in high school. My senior captain on the basketball team, John, when I was a freshman in college. Pastor Rob in Minnesota. Pastor Ryan here at South for three years as my mentor. For Russ Smith, that Denver Christian who just came alongside of me and has walked with me in my journey. Guys who just took notice of me and cared. It's not hard, it's not complicated, but it means the world. I think of Kevin Perdue here at South. He's one of our leaders with our students. Every single kid who walks in the door, Kevin goes and has a conversation with. Even the quiet and the shy kids. And it means the world to them, that he sees them, that he notices them. And what if we did this not only here at church, but in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and schools and sports teams and community? Think of the impact. 
And secondly, following Jesus' pattern of pursuit, what if we cultivate compassion for others? Jesus would see someone, he would feel compassion for them. And how do we cultivate that in our own lives? I think we listen to people's story. We build a relationship with them. We engage with them. We see conversations and relationships as invitations and opportunities, not as interruptions. We ask God to help cultivate this in us. And the more we do it, the more that we're going to grow and develop at it. To slow down and listen rather than just rushing on with our own agendas. Another one of our student volunteers, Kevin Rail, does this so well. He cares so deeply for our students, and he has a heart of gold. He goes out of his way to build up our students, and if he can help them or if he feels like someone else could better help them, he'll go to them and, and involve them in the process. He loves our students. He prays for them. He follows up with them. He's done that with Hannah and I from our first day here at South, and that has meant the world to us. It might not seem like a lot, but it matters to people that we cultivate compassion for them. And lastly, that we move toward others in love. We see Jesus doing this over and over. And again, it might look differently for different situations. Jesus would sometimes raise someone from the dead or heal or teach or feed. And in the story that good Samaritan, he just met a physical need, took care of him, he checked up on him. We could build a relationship, we could meet a pressing need, extend love, care for the person, maybe extend forgiveness to a family member or a friend, invite others into community. Today's our local ministry partner Sunday. This could be a great way to get plugged in and move toward others in love. There's tables in the lobby right after this service to learn about the various organizations South partners with and hear about the work that they're doing in our community. The areas of ministry range from supporting the homeless to ending human trafficking, fighting hunger, tutoring kids, and more. This Sunday could be a great way to take that step and to get involved that we're committed to living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, and we do that as a community in our community. As 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so we put it together. We see how God deeply loves and pursues us. He values us being made in his image. He pursues us. He invites us into a life with him as we love and pursue others. As we end this morning, I've asked Aaron to come up and to close with a song. I've left a spot on the end of your bulletin for my next step. And during this song, I want to encourage us to be thinking about what is our next step from what we have heard today. I love this song. It's called By Your Side by 10th Avenue North. Perhaps God did something in your heart today, whether you connected with the younger son or maybe the older son or your picture of the way God viewed and pursued you was challenged or changed that God pursues relentlessly, he loves always, and he refuses to give up on you. Let's pray.